You are listening to the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. These talks are made possible in part by generous donations from our listeners. To find out how to support and take part in our community, visit zennovascotia.com. When I was a younger man and martial arts were a big part of my life, every year I would go to where my teacher was. All of his senior students would go to one place for a week and we would train together. And the idea was that during this week we would all uh, kind of get on the same page again. And then if we were teachers ourselves, then we would go back and do the same with our students. And that way no one would drift too far. And it, it was, I always looked forward to this week, but it was hard and it was also very frustrating for this reason that every time we went, things would change. So to give a very, a very simple example, and, and maybe I've even used this example before, this is what it looks like at the end of, of a block to block your chest. So we would go one year and my teacher would go around and he'd see me like this. And he said, oh, what are you doing? That's terrible. And he'd push until it was way out here beyond my body where I was really straining. And he'd go down the line and he'd do this to most people. He said, what are you people thinking? And he'd push everybody out, out, out. And then for a whole week, we'd be thinking about this all the time, always pushing and straining and thinking, man, why do we get this so wrong? And then we go home, and if we had students, we would tell our students, we've, we've been doing it wrong. We have to, we have to really push, to really get way out here. And we say, okay, okay. And then a year later, you go back, and everyone's like this. And he'd walk around, and he'd say, what? What's wrong with you people? And he'd push it way in, not just back to where it was, but further in than it was when he told us it wasn't far enough out. And you just, you, and he would never acknowledge it. He never talked about his strategy. He never said, oh yeah, last year I said this, but this year I'm saying this. Never. It was always, you people aren't paying attention. And we would just swallow it up and we say, okay. So now we're here. And then we go home and we do the same thing again. We say, okay, everybody, we overdid it. Now we're here. And it would just go like that. I like this story for myself because I think this was, was one of my first concrete encounters with a, a teaching about the middle way. He could have just put us in the middle <laughs> and said, this is where you go. <laughs> but that's not the point. If you have a hundred people in the room, you have a hundred different bodies. You have a hundred different fists. You have a hundred different arms. It's not as simple as saying this is the middle. In order to understand where the middle is, first you have to find what's too tight. And then you have to find what's too loose. And then you have to find what's too tight. And then you have to find what's too loose. And then one day, Maybe it's neither. That doesn't mean 
it's dead center. But it's no longer one and it's no longer the other. And the reason you know that is because you spent some time in both places. Today's going to kind of ramble a little bit, but hopefully we'll go to the right place. A couple months ago, maybe, or more, I gave a talk in which I talked about Gandhi and how he was a childhood hero of mine who really inspired me. And I received a very, uh, a very kind email from someone who had listened to the podcast. Uh, very kind, but also calling me out and saying, you know, Gandhi was no saint. Maybe it's not appropriate to put him on some sort of pedestal. Maybe drawing inspiration from someone like that isn't really advisable because he had a lot of flaws and he made a lot of mistakes. Of course, when I was in fifth grade and I first watched the movie and first became interested in his life, I did idolize him, there's no question. I, I didn't have any interest in his complexity as a human being. I wasn't going to the library to try to find the, the expose on Gandhi. You know, I, I, I didn't know there was something I should know and I also didn't want to know. What moved me to use language that I would use now, not the language I would use then, was the clarity of his vow. How everything in his life seemed to spring forth from this clear purpose. How seamless it seemed to be. How uncompromising it seemed to be. That moved me and it still moves me. I had a, a, a conversation a while before leaving Japan, not in this last visit, but five years ago, with a fellow monk, and we were talking about uh, Narasaki Ikoroshi, who is one of the, considered one of the great Soto Zen priests of the last century. Very strict, very uncompromising. He's the kind of person who drove people crazy when he was alive because he was so clear in how he thought things should be done that everyone else had to kind of bend around him to make it that way and they would complain and complain. But then when he died, the story wasn't about how annoyed they were. It was how lucky they felt to have had that encounter, to have have been touched by this person, to have studied with this person, to have been influenced by this person. And I was telling my friend how I almost met him. I was in the same place at the same time. I just, I didn't know. And then he died and, and a couple of years later I did the math and realized, oh, if I had just, you know, if I had just taken a right turn that day instead of a left turn, I would have met this person who is this kind of 
hero of Zen. Oh, that would have been nice. And, and my friend said, oh, he said, I'm so glad I never met him. <laughs> and he didn't have to explain that. Because when I heard it, I thought, oh, that's right. As he is in my mind, he's a very useful man. Right? If I had hung out with him, if I had watched him go about his life, maybe, maybe that inspiration would have been unsullied. But that's not really how people work. People become three-dimensional. And in becoming three-dimensional, they lose some of their, their gloss. <laughs> they stop being quite so blindingly shiny. And we see all the nicks and the scratches. We are part of a tradition that over and over and over again encourages us not to idolize. There are stories in which, you know, a monk is too pious. He's too concerned about the sacred. And so the teacher takes the, you know, the Buddha statue off the altar and throws it in the fire just to kind of, just to watch the person lose their mind, <laughs> to challenge that question of what, what, what is holy? What are you holding on to? What are you, what are you getting from this? There's a book, I believe, by Michael Ondaatje in which he's, he's talking about Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And he describes urinals with images of the Buddha on them. So that you're peeing right on him. And, and you have to do it. It's a function you can't avoid. And so you, you're thrust into this position. You're thrust into this challenge with yourself about what you're doing and what it means so that you can move beyond some idea of idolization, some idea of distance. And then at the heart of all of it, we have this idea that if you meet the Buddha on the road, you kill him. <laughs> but if there's one millimeter of gap between you and this thing that you're, you're projecting things onto as being perfect or being wise or being compassionate. That's the thing you have to cut through. That's the thing you have to get over. And I can't stress enough how fortunate I think we are to be part of a tradition where that is so fundamental. It's a very brave stance to hold up the symbols of the tradition and then say, don't get too hung up on these. 
If the goal is marketing, you really want people to get hung up on those symbols. Right? It's a counterintuitive move. And I feel very lucky that, that I've had these voices throughout my life kind of picking at that. And that's one sign. But I think there's another sign as well. This weekend I was watching the news, I was watching the marches that were happening in the United States. And I kept seeing images of Emma Gonzalez, this teenager from Florida who has become uh, in many ways the face of this movement to change the way that we perceive guns and gun laws in America. And part of me sees her face come up over and over again and feels sad because I think that what we do is we set people up as heroes and then, and then we feast on them. We wait. Knowing that in a month or two months or six months, this teenage girl will say something or do something that undermines the narrative that we're enjoying about her right now. Something will be revealed that makes her story complex. And that complexity gives us permission not just to walk away from her as a hero figure, but to dismiss her altogether. And yet, when I was watching, knowing full well that she is a human being and knowing full well that she is a teenager who cannot possibly be expected to have all the answers. I found myself deeply moved by this image of her as a hero. And again, going back to the fifth grade, by her clarity of vow, which does not require wisdom. It does not require knowledge. It requires a certain awakening of the mind. An agreement to be in tune with that awakening. And so there's something on fire in her eyes and in the eyes of, of, of many of the, the other teenagers who are part of this. And I see that. And it's not just that I admire it. I feel challenged by it. I feel lit up by it. And I want to deepen my own relationship to vow. 
I want to stand in that way. I don't want to cut at that. I don't want others to cut at that. I want, I want us to allow ourselves to have heroes and to draw from them. And so I come back to this original story about my arm <laughs> and my arm being here and my arm being here. The point being for me that it doesn't have to be all one thing or all the other. One of the signs of maturity is the ability to navigate a complex narrative without insisting on making it simple. You can hold to the complexity of it so that you can admire someone in one way while recognizing their humanity. You can love someone while understanding that not everything they do is worthy of your respect. I spent the last two weeks in Japan with my teachers and, and visiting various temples and meeting lots of monks. Some of whom are considered a big deal and some of whom are not. And it's a reminder for me every time when I see these people, these people I know that at the same time that they are the very same people who inform my practice and inspire me to do certain things and to behave in certain ways and to hold certain things the way they do. At the same time, they're just so ordinary. They're so normal. If you met them for the first time, you might see that and you might not. Because they have kind of a nice way of holding themselves, you know. And they've been doing this a long time and they dress really well. And they have great haircuts. And, and you might meet them and you might think, oh, wow, there's really something going on here. And the fact is, you'd be right. There is something going on. And if you spent more time with them, you might eventually start to think, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> There's nothing going on here at all. It's a show. It's just a performance. This person is, is far too human. This person, they, they, they burp like an ordinary person, <laughs> right? And, and when they drive, they could really be better drivers. 
right? The Buddha would be a better driver than this, right? And so you could fall to the other side and dismiss them entirely and come back and say, you know, I was so fooled by this guy, but I saw through it. But then if you stick it out, something else might happen. And you might find that the thing you saw first and the thing you saw second can exist at the same time. And that you can hold both at the same time. And that you can allow yourself without being blind and without being foolish to also be moved, to be inspired in a way that is uncynical. In a way that awakens in you a feeling of capacity that maybe you don't always feel. This goes for people now, it goes for people in the past. How do we understand the people in our lineage? You know, I come back to this over and over again. If we imagine that these are people who are not affected by their time and their position and their culture and their place, we're fools. But if we stop there, we also lose this, this chance that's being offered to us. I don't know what the ending is here, except to say that whoever it is for you, if you find yourself experiencing a person on one extreme, and then later you find yourself on the other side of the extreme, maybe to understand that you're not done, or you shouldn't be. It's like a swing, right? If you let it swing long enough, it, it settles somewhere that makes sense. Some place that touches both sides. And I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.